Welcome to the Friday subscribers-only edition of the Hub Dialogues, the podcast of the Hub, Canada's leading source for insight and analysis into the big issues and ideas driving the public conversation. On these special Friday-only broadcasts, we're going to be convening Sean Spear, our editor-at-large, and Stuart Thompson, our editor-in-chief, for a conversation with me, Rudyard Griffiths, about the big stories and issues that have animated the public conversation over the last seven days. Our goal is to leave you with some new analysis and insights, and hopefully some new perspectives on the big issues of our time. So pull up a chair right now and join Sean Spear, Stuart Thompson, and myself for the Friday subscriber-only edition of the Hub Dialogues. Hey, Sean, Stuart, great to be in conversation with you today, Friday. What is it, guys? The 22nd of July, summer is slipping away. <laughs> you need to stop counting down summer. It's really bumming me out. <laughs> great to connect, guys. Big plans, uh, Stuart, for the rest of the summer. I know you're back from your vacation, but come on, you got to have uh, you got a, a road trip. Are you off to some Canadian locale to soak in the dog days? No, I... I'm coming back from a running injury and I'm just excited to start, you know, getting my time down again. So okay. I'm going to be out in the Ottawa humidity, sweating and looking like a red faced maniac. Nice. That's what you serves, you right, serves you right for all the running. Um, <laughs> <laughs> my family and I are off to Thunder Bay next week uh, to see my son's uh, great grandparents and great grandparents and extended family. So, and, and fight the mosquitoes. Uh, nice. So that's our, our big plans for the rest of the summer. Awesome. Well, I'm at that point of parenthood where I finally got two kids off to camp the first two weeks of August together. So this is Amazing. like, <laughs> it's been over a decade since I've had, uh, you know, a summer uh, break like this. Love my kids, but also love this overnight camp. Uh, Sean, you're about, you're about 13 years away from that. So I feel for you, buddy. The summer of Rudyard, are you going to be on the are you going to be on the water? Well, how are you going to spend two yeah, weeks on your own? I'm going to try to get some sailing. Uh, you know, my wife is back in the office, so unfortunately, I'm going to be a little bit Toronto bound, but maybe try to get up to Georgian Bay and get a few little breakaways. Hey, guys, that's a great update on summer plans. Always love to hear what you're both up to. Here's what I want to do, though, on today's show. Let's get down to, to brass tacks. we got two really interesting conservative leadership races underway. Uh, maybe the prosaic to the profound, uh, Alberta versus the United Kingdom. Some interesting kind of confluences and ability here to compare and contrast, maybe give us some new insights together into the, you know, the state of conservatism in the Anglo sphere. So Stuart, let me start with you for an update on uh, the developments in the, uh, the, the Alberta race for uh, replacing Jason Kenney. As premier, you think there's been some kind of consequential developments here that are foreshadowing uh, the possibility here that Daniel Smith really is emerging as a, a powerful contender in this race, and the, and the party is starting to get a little bit worried about what that just might mean for um, a future election. Yeah, I think in this one news story we got this week, you get both evidence that she is seen as the front runner among people who know these things, and also that they're worried 
that she's the front runner. Um, if you look at, um, you know, the, the Alberta finance minister, Jason Nixon, who's not like, he's not some institutional guy. I mean, he's in touch with the base. He always has been, I think. And um, he's been one of Jason Kenney's uh, right-hand guys. And he came out this week just um, in a way that you don't normally see from sort of a sitting minister or someone in the party, he um, has ripped her ideas for the Alberta Sovereignty Act in the similar way that our writer Howard Anglin did. Um, he basically said it's problematic. You can't do this. It's not going to work. It's going to split the caucus. Um, and it's something that concerns him. So I... You know, this, this is one of those things where I think it shows us that there really is sort of a divide here in, among sort of the institutionalists and this kind of new insurgent um, force in the party. These are the people that brought down Kenny. And I was personally quite curious if if that was it for them, if they'd sort of like taken a scalp and then they were just going to go, um, you know, off into the night. Um, the hard part for these candidates is attracting these voters and getting them to vote, um, getting them to mail in ballots, that kind of stuff. So um, if Danielle Smith is looking like the front runner, it looks like she's actually doing something of that sort. So Sean, it's, again, to get back into, our, to play with our compare and contrast here of the UK versus Alberta and these two leadership races, you know, it's interesting the UK, you, you're going to have a debate between uh, Sunak and Trust for sure on a variety of issues, but let me just call it like it is. You don't have the crazy showing up in the same way that we do in the Alberta race with some of Danielle Smith's ideas uh, around uh, the Sovereignty Act, but we can also talk about unconventional COVID treatments. Um, what's going on here? Why, why is Alberta politics hewing maybe towards more of a U.S.-style uh, conservative uh, fracturing um, you know, of a, of a more populist versus traditionalist component, whereas in the UK, we, we really have not seen that those types of divisions emerge. What's your thesis for that, that uh, difference? Some of it is, is cultural, um, but a big part of it is institutional. Let me un unpack that. Um, I think listeners will know, in fact, we, we talked about this last week in our conversation with David Frum, that the British Conservative Party has something of a hybrid model for the way it selects leaders. Um, the, the Parliamentary Caucus is responsible for um, getting the number of candidates down to two, uh, and then they run head-to-head -head in a race uh, in which party members ultimately select the candidate. Juxtapose that, of course, with um, the Canadian Conservative Party at the national level and the United Conservative Party in Alberta, uh, where we have a, a pretty egalitarian um, process for selecting leaders in which candidates sell memberships and then ultimately those members um, make the choice. What's interesting about the, the, the British election so far is that um, the, the parliamentary caucus has, has whittled it down to two kind of establishment candidates. And I, one wonders if that may start to create some friction within the party. Polling tells us that Kimmy Badenoch um, uh, would have outperformed um, both of the remaining candidates with the party membership. So in effect, there's this divide between the parliamentary caucus, uh, which is preference these two establishment candidates and, and British Conservative Party members um, that preferred um, this younger, more dynamic, more kind of insurgent type candidate. So I guess that's a long way of saying um, the institutional approach in the UK has, as you say, minimized the risk, uh, I suppose, of a kind of more insurgent candidate but one wonders if it's created the kind of seeds of insurgency by 
um, excluding the candidate that seems to be the preference of party members. Mm -hmm. So Stuart, what is the possibility here in Alberta that the party can mount any sustained uh, challenge to uh, Daniel Smith's campaign? Like, is there, are there mechanisms? Is there momentum to block her? I mean, she does seem to be commanding the kind of uh, the heights, so to speak, in terms of the media, uh, in terms of driving uh, the narrative and discussion around the campaign. She's very skilled at that as a former broadcaster. Um, I don't know. It just, to me, on a micro level, it has these interesting parallels to what we're seeing in American politics, where you, American conservative politics, where you have people who have these communication skills, this, this wiliness in terms of being able to sniff out and suss out issues where you are going to get traction, you are going to get kind of excitement on the part of a membership and then driving engagement around your campaign and your, your ideas. Uh, I mean, who else in the leadership race, frankly, comes close to her in, in terms of that skill set? Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And one thing I think you can't underestimate is that communications ability. And, you know, the, the thing that I think sometimes goes under the radar is that Rachel Notley has that in spades also, uh, the NDP leader. You know, we if you're in Alberta and you're sort of right of center, you look at that as sort of the worst four years of your life. But I think it's still, we still need to reckon with the fact that Rachel Notley was able to do that. She was able to win a majority government in Alberta with the NDP party. And it's it's because she is a very engaging person and an engaging speaker. And she's got those political instincts that are kind of the ineffable quality that you need um, to do that. And Danielle Smith has that. Um, nobody else in the race has that. Um, so, you know, if I were betting, I would say that's that's what you go to is the talent. Um, I will point out one thing, though. Don Braid, who's one of the most plugged in um, columnists in Alberta, had a column out this morning saying, let's not get too crazy about some of the numbers the Smith campaign is complaining about. The, this is the kind of stuff that always happens in a leadership race is the bickering about who sold how many memberships and who's lying about how many they've sold. Um, the Brian Jean Kim came has come out and said, look, these numbers don't add up. And it's pretty obvious they don't add up because they're saying they've sold more than the total that have been sold. Um, so I think it's something worth paying attention to. And we should probably keep an open mind about what's going on behind the scenes here. Uh, Rudyard, you asked Stuart about what, if anything, the establishment uh, in Alberta can do to stop um, Daniel Smith's momentum. And and, and I, I, I kind of agree with Stuart. I, I mean, it seems to me um, the initial plan was for Travis Tabes, um, the previous finance minister and a close ally of uh, former uh, Premier Jason Kenney, was going to be the um, standard bearer for the UCP establishment. And the fact that the current finance minister, Jason Nixon, weighed in this week, um, which is unconventional, as you know, in, a, in, a, in an intra-party leadership race, is a sign that the establishment isn't confident that the Tabes campaign um, is effectively challenging um, the Smith campaign and, and that there was a need for reinforcement. So, you know, to come back to where we started, as, as Stuart said, it's a sign that, um, that the UCP establishment um, really does start to see um, the, the, the serious threat that, that Smith poses to them. And I think the kind of Kenny legacy, which was to create uh, a, a big tent, um, but ultimately kind of center moderate, center right party that was going to be able to compete uh, on, a, on a regular basis for, for government. And, you know, I, it's, it's early to speculate, of course, um, but one wonders if it ultimately leads to something like 
um, the disaggregation of the two parties um, that Jason Kenney put together uh, in the lead up to the last uh, provincial mm -hmm. election campaign. One thing I lament a little bit about the quality and substance of the conversation in Canada is, you know, the extent to which a lot of oxygen, political oxygen is being used up, frankly, to discuss, you know, somewhat fantastical ideas like the Sovereignty Act or in the United States, we saw, you know, under Trump, endless, you know, uh, miasmas of political distraction around border walls and, you know, Muslim immigrant bans and, and you name it. And I guess what I find a little bit encouraging about the UK race between Sunak and Truss is that you are going to have a more kind of coherent and I think important debate between, you know, trust coming forward with a much more of a kind of Thatcherite view of a need to kind of kickstart and uh, deregulate uh, the UK economy to prepare it for its post-Brexit future. And I think an equally important argument from Sunak saying, in a sense, you know, we, we're not going to sugarcoat the economic challenges that face Britain at this moment with high inflation, uh, the disruptions, the economic disruptions, which have not been insignificant uh, from its uh, uh, busting out of, uh, of Europe. And, you know, tax cuts are not a responsible policy uh, at, this, at this moment of, of financial kind of uncertainty and increasing deficit and debt spending uh, for now. Uh, the entire duration of the Boris Johnson government, which was profligate in a way that was similar to a lot of these, you know, American conservative, uh, North American conservative uh, governments like Trump's or even like Doug Ford's Ontario, which never seems to find a deficit spending opportunity that it, it doesn't like. So to come back to you guys, you know, what's happening here? Like, why do we have, again, a seemingly more kind of coherent policy-oriented conversation about really kind of realistic and important ideas and challenges versus here in North America? And I don't think it's just an American phenomenon anymore, Stuart. I think it's it's coming into Canada, this, this again, magical thinking, this kind of, this itch scratching of issues and ideas that are just uh, either unattainable uh, or completely outside of, I think, the realm of the conversation that we have to have about all the urgent issues that an economy like Canada's faces at this moment. Yeah, I, I, one thing that I have thought about a little bit, it's a little bit unfair to Polyev, I think, because he's become such the sort of man of the moment for a lot of the party base. But something that occurred to me when this slate of candidates emerged for the leadership race is that this is the best chance anyone's going to have of beating the Liberal Party, I think, in the next election. It's not a guarantee because it never is a guarantee, but if you are running against Justin Trudeau or whoever replaces him, you've got a good shot. And the slate of candidates didn't really reflect that. Um, it, you know, it was Jean Charest who, um, you know, came back from the 90s to, to run for the leadership and Pierre Polyev, who doesn't have much of a resume other than just being in parliament. Um, then you look at the UK race, which has emerged with Sunak and uh, Truss, who former chancellor of the Exchequer and foreign secretary. Those are big jobs. Those are serious people. And it's partly because they're in government right now. It's partly because the UK Tories are more of a natural governing party than the Canadian Tories are. I think they get a certain amount of confidence and maybe a little bit of arrogance from that. And that can be fatal for a party, um, but can also 
allow you and that you support. So um, when you're a little bolder, I think sometimes that pays off. And the one thing that we have not seen um, from this slate is boldness. And it's all very small stuff. Um, I, I think if you look at the institutions too, um, the UK Tories are just stronger. And I think that partly becomes comes from the situation they're in, as opposed to where the Tories are in Canada, where there's a little more sort of existential insecurity in their lives. Yeah, the other big difference, I think, between um, the British Conservative Party and the state of North American conservatism is that it just one gets the sense that North American conservatives really define themselves in contrast to their opponents. You know, in effect, they let the other side set the terms of debate, uh, whereas in the UK, and it you know, probably reflects some of the dynamics that Stuart just outlined. Um, one of the things that I, I always strikes me about the British Conservative Party and British conservatism more generally is the kind of rich um, intra tensions between, um, you know, the kind of Thatcherite free market types versus the one nation conservatives, you know, that might be um, personified by say Ian Duncan Smith. It's even reflected guys in their think tank culture. So there are, you know, organizations like the Institute for Economic Affairs or the Center for Policy Studies, which are, you know, um, associated with Keith Joseph or Margaret Thatcher and have a, a kind of conventional libertarian approach or the Center for Social Justice, which is a, a kind of almost like social gospel form of conservatism. And um, I think that has been reflected in this race. You know, when we started with eight candidates, we're down to two. And each of these different intellectual factions, you know, effectively was represented. It's hard to say in the federal conservative leadership race or even in the UCP, um, that those kind of intellectual differences are reflected. In effect, what we have is kind of tonal or rhetorical differences um, that, uh, that in effect obscure how much similarity and convergence there is uh, amongst the different candidates. Okay, guys, let's take a break. When we come back on the other side, let's update on the what Sean was just talking about or referencing the conservative uh, federal leadership uh, race and develops underway, underway some musing supposedly out of the Shrey campaign, uh, not verified, but um, the uh, contention that we're going to need a new centrist party uh, once this leadership is over. Pierre Polyev is the winner. So we're going to test, uh, road test uh, that assumption uh, with our roundtable team back right after this break. Rudyard Griffiths here, the executive director of The Hub. Thank you for listening to this, our Friday subscriber-only podcast. If you're enjoying this podcast and what The Hub is all about, providing insightful analysis and insights into the big issues and ideas facing Canada, all from a 100% Canadian perspective, please consider becoming a donor. You can do that right now at www.thehub.ca. Simply click on the button, Donate, We'll send you a charitable tax receipt and a whole bunch of great benefits that come with being a hub donor. Again, you can do that right now at www.thehub.ca. Thank you in advance for your generous contribution. Now back to our program. Hi, Hub listeners. You're listening to our regular Friday roundtable with Sean Spear, our editor-at-large, Stuart Thompson, our editor-in-chief. We are covering uh, the week that was... uh, in uh, national politics, public policy, having a bit of a focus on this podcast the last little while because there is this thing going on. If you haven't 
checked out your Twitter feed in the last five minutes called the uh, Conservative Party Leadership Race. Um, it's interesting to us at the Hub. We're not so much concerned about partisan politics, but we are kind of concerned about uh, the conservative movement as a whole and uh, you know the policy ideas that uh, are being put forward, maybe the absence of them in this current leadership contest. So to come to you first, uh, Stuart, you thought there was a development on the campaign trail this week, some rumors flying around that, uh, I don't know, maybe warrant uh, a little bit of exploration here, a little bit of prodding uh, by the roundtable today to see, uh, is this real? Is there the potential for some kind of fracturing of uh, the conservative movement in Canada uh, should Pierre Polyev uh, become the leader in September? Yeah, and this is one of those things where there are two tracks. One track is you how the party voters feel, and they like Pierre Polyev a lot. And our polling tends to, to bear that out. And then there's the sort of more elite voices that are, you know, they tend to be more moderate. And I think maybe my theory is this is a, a lot of dispositional stuff. Um, it's Pierre Polyev's tone that I think bothers them more than anything else, because I think if you trace this back to the truckers. I think that's where a lot of this comes down to. Marjorie LeBreton, who's one of the big voices um, from the Senate, who said that she couldn't be part of this. Um, when, you, when you look at the actual position that Polyev took on the truckers, it was that he supported what they were saying, but he didn't agree with a lot of the, the mechanisms they used to make their protest. Um, that polls really well, even among the general public uh, in Canada, not just among conservative voters, but you know, it's the fact of going to a highway overpass and, you know, waving and cheering and stuff like that. That's the kind of stuff that I think is causing a lot of these rifts. Um, and if you look at some of the names, we're looking at Christy Clark, Marjorie LeBreton, um, Lisa Rape, people like that. Um, people who I think have always been a little uncomfortable with the, the, the sort of right of the party. Um, and I think if you look at how it's coalescing, we've got a conference happening next month. Um, I think we're going to learn a little bit when that comes around, how much of this is just this sort of um, the, the dead cat bounce of these elites who are really, really not fans of Pierre Polyev, or if maybe there's something there. I, I tend to think that the idea of a centrist party doesn't really make sense, because when you look at what people really believe, ordinary voters, there's no centrists like it is just people believe a lot of different things and the sort of fiscally conservative socially liberal idea is kind of a myth it's not really something that real voters think about uh, Rudyard, maybe i'll just pick up from there i mentioned uh in the last segment that i'm you know somewhat envious of the kind of rich and textured debate within british conservatism and so you know i, I think it's interesting that um different factions are trying to organize themselves, including institutionally within Canadian conservatism. Um, as Stuart alluded to, this group called Center Ice Conservatives that's associated with former leadership candidate Rick Peterson is going to host a, a conference in Edmonton next month. We're going to have a presence there and we'll do some reporting to keep uh, our, our readers and, and listeners up to speed on, on some of these developments. Um, but as Stuart says, it, it, you know, it seems to me it's one thing to, to uh, try to institutionally advance a, a, a particular set of ideas or policy preferences um, within conservative politics, but it's not clear to me when you listen to these people talk about their priorities or their, um, or their disagreements with Pierre Polyev or the Conservative Party more generally, 
like what what the real issue is. Rick Peterson had a an op-ed at the National Newswatch a couple of weeks ago, and as I read through it, I thought, yeah, I don't really understand the difference here. Like he, you know, he wants smaller government, he wants lower taxes, uh, he wants you know more personal freedom, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and so, as Stuart says, it's, at some level, I think there's an onus on these voices to actually articulate um, how their worldview and their approach to governing would would differ from Pierre Polyev and the Conservative Party. Because at present, you know, it sounds to me like they, you know, they think his tweets are mean, um, and I'm not sure that's a basis for um, picking up, you know, and and leaving the party. Um, um, so I guess this conference hopefully will. Uh, help to provide a, 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 a fuller picture of what their real beef is. What's your take, Rudyard? Well, let me just, as a point of fact, just kind of jump in and flip this to Stuart for a sec, because I think there's something here just to, for us to put our finger on, which is, Stuart, there is a there was a report um, uh, from Politico uh, uh, floating the idea that the Sheree campaign um, was considering uh, just this, starting some kind of uh, center, mildly right, I don't know what, how you typify it, uh, party. What, what kind of, as a journalist, when you see these stories, because they, we're all familiar with them as readers, they're unsourced, um, they're potentially politically damaging to the free campaign. I mean, he's in the middle of a race, he came out on Twitter and immediately denied this. Um What's your take on this? Do you give it some credence? Would an organization like Politico not have some confidence in the sourcing of the story and the, I guess the the authority of the person who was giving them this information? Yeah, and this is all coming from Quebec media too. Um, what they're doing is quoting the press um, columnists, and I I know this stuff is floating around. And my take on it when I read it this morning was that this is just frustration from people who, I mean, it's fun to make fun of it. I will certainly do that. Um, but it also, you feel for people who no longer feel like they have a political home and for whatever reason. And I think that is a real feeling, but I will just quote, um, Politico did talk to Lisa Raitt, um, who said, starting a new party is not a short-term solution. It would take years to build infrastructure and membership. And in that time, there would continue to be a liberal government. She says, I'm not against it or for it, I just recognize the significant challenges. Um, so, yeah, sitting on the fence on, a little bit. Is that, <laughs> is that kind of interesting? Like, what the heck is Lisa Ray doing? Like, what is she saying there? Like, like decode that for us as a journalist when you, that, like, that's I don't some, know, it sounds to me like she's keeping a door open here that, like, are I, people talking in the background? Is there some? I don't think seriously. I think that what that is, is someone saying, I get it. I get how you feel. I like, I understand the impulse here, but do you really want to go through 10 more years of a liberal government um, while you get your stuff together on this? Um, and I think that is true. I think a lot of this is just frustration being articulated and you're right. It is probably more damaging to everyone than like, this is more damaging to the party, to Polyev, to Sheree, than it is helpful to anyone. So I, I think that's mostly what Ray is articulating there. It might not be a serious proposition, but that doesn't mean that it 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 it's merely anonymous sources that are um, that are sort of speculating the summer or even possibly trying to do harm to the Shrey campaign. His um, campaign co-chair Tasha Carandon, um, has a new book out entitled "The Right Path: 
how conservatives can unite, inspire, and take Canada forward. Um, I'm going to be uh, interviewing her next week for Hub Dialogues, uh, and that episode will, will come soon thereafter. But in her book, she puts forward this idea um, that um, if the Con Conservative Party of Canada succumbs to American-style populism as she sees it, there may be a need to create a, a, a new political vehicle. So this will certainly be one of the, the, the topics that I'll want to take up with her um, in, in next week's interview. Just, uh, I don't know, sir, maybe some listeners can correct us, but I'm just trying to think of like when a party has ever really emerged in Canada in our modern history independently outside of a region and this particular identities and concerns and often grievances of regional politics. Um, I mean, I guess you could go back to the CCF, but, you know, the CCF had a very Western you know, cast or character to it. I think of all the uh, the Bloc Québécois, I think of all the parties that have emerged out of Quebec, um, both at the provincial level and federally, again, strong regional. I, I just, you know, you could think, well, you know, as you say, that maybe there's some centrist coalition that could be assembled, but in a first-past-the-post system, it just, the disincentives just seem so utterly extreme and it really has to do with the voting system in my view it's not maybe that these things couldn't survive in a israeli style knesset but wow i just yeah i, I think this is this is not this is it must be musing because anyone who tried this it would have to be the most painful sisyphean task that one could possibly imagine taking on in the few years that all of us have before we shake off our mortal coils. No, but it's a great, you know, that I'm glad you raised the CCF uh, example because, you know, I think it's a good um, contradistinction actually, because in that case, this was an organization, a, a political party with a clear worldview, uh, you know, a clearly defined juxtaposition with the mainstream parties. Um, it never formed government, but it was a major player at different times in the 20th century because it, 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 it represented something different and distinct in our political system. Um, you know, I, again, it comes back to my earlier point, which is if you, if you, you know, read Tasha Carradine's book or you listen to Rick Peterson or some of these other voices, it, you know, it seems to me they agree with Pierre Polyev and the Conservative Party of Canada, like on seven of 10 or, you know, eight of 10 issues. Um, in most cases, you know, that's a, a sign that things are moving in the right direction, um, not a sign that we need to create a new party. I, um, I interviewed uh, Henry Olson uh, for Hub Dialogues a couple of weeks ago, and I, I put a question to him about, um, about American political parties. And he said something like, he actually referred to a, a Lord of the Rings quote, which was, there's no one who perfectly represents me um, and my views, which of course is the case. Um, but uh, a, a political party that's kind of raison d'etre is just that it's nicer than Pierre Polyev, um, but broadly agrees with his program, just doesn't strike me as one that's going to have a, a lot of political fecundity. Yeah, I'll just quickly add that I think the Sisyphusian reference, I think, is actually totally right, because you guys, I think, know from seeing political campaigns that it's hard to get people to knock on doors out of a passion for centrism. It just is not going to happen. I think that's really the fundamental trouble here. We're doing this on Zoom, so you are you're reacting with some mirth here at Stuart's remark. You think that's spot on? It's just the traction's not there, the juice isn't there, 
the electricity of centricism in our current political moment it's kind of kind of weird to think well, what are we for compromise <laughs> you know it's just it doesn't seem like it's going to it's it reflects you know in all seriousness reflects the kind of current yeah. political moment that we find ourselves in where uh, a lot of the energy on yeah. both ends of the political spectrum are um you know uh marked by kind of passion and uh, yeah and look at the look at the liberal party of canada which in some ways has been traditionally the ultimate centrist vehicle you know either out of choice or necessity uh, i think the liberal party over the last five years has you know um you know been elbows up and has been a, a participant in cultural and social debates in ways that might have made former leaders uh and party presidents blush, but in some ways, these are now the table stakes uh, to get into the political debate, the public conversation. And um, yeah, you just have to wonder, uh, again, is this just sour grapes, gripe, something I think we can safely say would not uh, really stand the test of electoral politics, let alone probably the intestinal fortitude of you know some rump and caucus that might actually anticipate uh, breaking off. Yeah, well, I'll put, uh, I, I, as I mentioned, I'm, I'll be speaking to Tasha Kierenden, uh about this next week. So listeners who are who are interested and curious, you know, stay, stay tuned. Um, and, and, you know, one last point I'd make, Rudyard, for, for our listeners, um, those who are interested in our discussion about uh, the British Conservative election, wait till Monday morning. We have uh, a, a, a great offering of um, some reporting, uh, some analysis on, um, on the British conservative leadership race. And, and you know, as we discussed earlier, the um, extent to which there are similarities and differences to um, uh, our current political moment. Awesome, guys. Look, have a great uh, weekend. What are, how many more do we have left in our summer, guys? Are we down to like September is, oh no, we got like five weekends until September. You got to so live in the moment. I order you <laughs> as your executive director to make the most of them. Okay. We will do this all again next Friday. Uh, have a great week. Thank you for listening to this special Friday edition of the Hub Dialogues for subscribers only. Hope you've enjoyed the program. If you have a comment or suggestion about the show, an issue, a topic, an idea that you'd like us to cover on our regular Friday subscriber-only Hub Dialogues, please send us an email to info at thehub.ca. Also, check out our website, www.thehub.ca, for tons of great analysis and insights about the big issues and ideas shaping our world and Canada's future. While you're there, if you'd like to, consider becoming a donor. We'd love to have your support. Simply click on the donate button. We'll send you a charitable tax receipt and you'll get a whole series of great benefits and perks that come with being a Hub donor. This edition and every edition of the Friday subscriber-only Hub Dialogues are produced by Ricky Gerwitz. I'm Rudyard Griffiths, the executive director of The Hub. Talk to you again next Friday. Bye-bye.